Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us safely to a brand new day, and we pray that you would preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin nor be overcome by adversity or anxiety. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 7, verse 17 through portions of Genesis 8. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The water swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarmed the earth, all human beings, everything on dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, human beings and animals and creeping things and birds. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. And the waters swelled on the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters gradually receded from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent out the raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent out the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set its foot, and it returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent out the dove, and it did not return to him anymore. All right, so Noah is in the ark safely, and the flood is raging. And the verb that gets repeated is swelled. Verse 18, the waters swelled and increased greatly. This is actually the same verb of proliferation that's used in Genesis 1 to talk about the beauty of creation. I think in Genesis chapter 1, uh, the NRSV translates this Hebrew word multiplied, but it's the exact same word. The waters are multiplying. And in a sense, this verb that was attached to the goodness of creation is now attached to an instrument of destruction. So we have this story of anti-creation happening. In verse 21, we see that all flesh died that moved on the earth, which is the exact opposite of God breathing the breath of life into all flesh and all flesh coming alive. And so the same animals that were created are now being blotted out. You have a really horrific scene, but again, symbolically, the very creation is being undone and the waters are being released in order to blot out 
what God had began in Genesis 1 and 2. And again, just to remind you of what's going on, we recall earlier that the Lord was sorry he had made the human beings because of the wickedness and the evil that he saw in them continually. And there's that great line where it says, Noah found favor in the sight of God. But we talked about this last week, how a better translation and a more theologically accurate translation might be favor found Noah. And so God is preserving the covenant through one person, a theme that we will see continue through scripture all the way to Abraham and others. And we have this great verb where it says, God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And whenever the Old Testament uses that verb, remember, it's not that the Hebrews envisioned God as forgetful, as, oh, I need to remember my people. But whenever it says God remembered, that's a way of saying that God is going to be faithful to God's covenant. It's, it's also a way of saying that God is righteous. Whenever we did our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, we recall that Greek word, diakosune, the righteousness of God, how the best translation of that is God's faithfulness to the covenant. Basically, righteousness means God keeps God's word. God does not break God's promise. And God has made a promise to Noah, and in a sense, a promise to the whole creation. And to say God remembers that promise is just to say that God is faithful to God's word. But just a few examples of this language. So in Exodus, it says, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians, and I have remembered my covenant, right? That's right before the Exodus. Or in Leviticus, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, or Psalm 106, verse 45, and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. So whenever that verb remembered is used, and it will be used a lot in the Old Testament, it is a way of speaking about God's faithfulness to the covenant. It's not that God ever forgets about us. Now, in our Sunday study, Philip Turner made a really interesting comment that this idea of remembering is not just God's work, but in a sense, it's at the heart of our work, that remembering is the very heart of Christian piety, and that what we do every Sunday when we gather as Christians is, in a sense, remember our story before God. Take this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Feed on him in your hearts by faith and be thankful. That's what the celebrant says every single week. Or we say, we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, we await his coming in glory. And the reason that remembering is at the heart of Christian piety is because part of being a human being is that we're prone to forget. We're easily tossed to and fro by the different stories the world gives us, and we're very tempted to find our identity in our life in some different story. And so if you go out into the world and you read a magazine or watch a commercial or basically listen to anything that comes out of the world, you're going to hear a story about who you are, a story about who you are as a consumer or as an achiever or what it means to be a man or a woman, right? There's something about the world that is going to basically try to get you to find your place 
in the world's story. And one of the things that we can just note is that that story inevitably leads to violence and depression and competition and grief because it's not really a true story. And so we gather every Sunday to remember, to remember that our identity is not found in what we own or achieve, but rather it's found in an image stamped on our soul that bears the likeness of God himself. And so there's just a lot kind of bound up in this word, remember, both on what it means for our life as Christians and both as to who God is. So God remembers the covenant, God's faithful to the covenant, and God makes a wind blow over the earth. Now, this should bring to mind the same wind that hovered over the chaos in Genesis chapter one. So if what we heard earlier with the waters multiplying was a story of anti-creation, what we have now with the wind blowing over the earth is a type or a prefiguring of a new creation, right? The old creation has been blotted out by the waters, and now a new creation will be brought into being. Now, this new creation, reading it very crudely, right, as just Noah stepping back on the same old earth, it's not really going to take. The same sin that was part of the old creation will also be part of the creation whenever Noah steps off the ark. But again, that's not the best way for us to read this. Um, I think that the best way for us to read this is figuratively as pointing to the new creation. And uh, I have this quote up here from 1 Peter 3 about how the author of 1 Peter talks about how Noah's ark prefigures baptism. It says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigures, now saves you. And so the author of 1 Peter is very clear in his interpretation that the story of Noah is meant to prefigure the story of Christians who have the old man or the old woman drowned in the waters or the flood of baptism, and then who emerge a completely new creature. And so I think that's one of the most helpful ways to read the story of Noah's Ark, because if we take it too literally, we end up with a God who's, well, maybe I'll try this. Maybe I'll try killing all human beings. Oh, that didn't work, right? That's not the best way to read this story. I think the powerful way to read this story is as a prefigure to baptism in which the old person is drowned and a new person emerges a new creation emerges. And of course, this is not the only story in the Old Testament that can be read to prefigure baptism. We see the same story in that of the Exodus, right, where the waters part and Pharaoh and his charioteers drown in the waters, right, and the Israelites, they step up onto the beach safe as a new people. Uh, that also can be read to prefigure the death and resurrection that is baptism. And just in case I haven't sold you on this particular type of reading, we have this wonderful story about the dove. Now, kind of at its very basic level, there is a dove on uh, Noah, and Noah sends this dove to kind of do a, a little scouting out. It's a very well-trained dove. I don't know when Noah had time to train this dove, but the, the dove is well-trained, and it returns to Noah with a freshly plucked olive leaf in its beak. But just think of the symbolism of this, right? And what other story do we have a dove 
that is a messenger of peace, a dove that lands on a human being who is immersed in water, who goes under that water and then comes up before his mission to inaugurate a new kingdom and to signify the dawn of a new day of peace, love, and salvation, right? This is the story of Jesus's baptism. And what is it that lands on Jesus as he drowns in the river Jordan symbolically and emerges ready to take on his mission as the Christ, the Messiah? It is a dove, right? And uh, to, to really kind of flesh this out, what is it in this story that is in the dove's beak, but an olive leaf? And what do we get from olives? We get oil. And what is oil used to do? It's used to anoint, to anoint kings. And so in baptism, after I baptize a child or an adult in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I then take the oil and I anoint them as a king. And I say, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism, and you are marked as Christ's own forever. And so not that this figurative way of reading the story of Noah's Ark is the only way, but I do think there's a lot of just symbolic power for modern day Christians who are thinking about the meaning of their own baptism. And I think it's a really powerful way of reading this particular story. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and saw that the face of the ground was drying. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his son's wives and every animal, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out of the ark by families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever destroy every living creature as I have done. So... Uh, Noah removes the covering of the ark. It's time to step on the new creation. He sees the face of the ground is dry, but the Hebrew is Adama, right? The word soil. Adam, the Adam comes from the Adama. So this is a reference to Genesis 1, where the man of soil is kind of emerging again. So the new Adam, the new creation, the figure of one to come. And the same blessing that is given to Adam is now given to all those in this new creation, which is be fruitful and multiply. So it's almost like this is a second chance. It's a new creation. And uh, the best way, again, we can see this is as pointing to the new creation that Jesus ushers in because this new creation will, again, go badly pretty quickly. But for a moment, there's a glimmer of hope. And before we get to, you know, the bad news, there's the very sweet moment with Noah worshiping. He builds an altar to the Lord and he makes an animal sacrifice. Now, I think it's worth noting that this animal sacrifice is in stark contrast to what we see in the Garden of Eden. 
This is the first time I believe that a human being offers an animal sacrifice. We have God uh, making the animal skins to clothe Adam in Genesis chapter three, which means that a sacrifice was offered. But this is, as far as I'm concerned, the first uh, sacrifice offered by an earthly priest, this priest being Noah. And I think it's just worth noting that um, one of the scholars I read, a Hebrew scholar named Robert Alter, just reminds us that the ancient Hebrew view of animal sacrifice was a little bit complicated. Complicated in the sense that it was at the heart of their cultic worship. It is how the forgiveness of sins and cleanliness took place. But at the same time, it is glaringly absent from Genesis 1 and 2, and the first time an animal sacrifice is offered, so I just correct myself, the first time it's offered is with Abel. It leads to the murder of the one who offered it. And so I, I just think that as we get into the sacrificial system, it's, it's good to be reminded that the ancient Hebrews may have had some conflicting understandings of whether or not this was part of God's good original design. But here in verse 21, we have the Lord smelling the pleasing odor and being satisfied. Now, this is very anthropomorphic imagery, right, of God smelling the animals that have been sacrificed and saying, that smells really good to me. But this is just the Bible's way of saying that God was pleased with the sacrifice, pleased with the offering of Noah. Remember our conversation about Cain and Abel, that God was not fully pleased with Cain's offering, uh, but with Abel. Abel offered the firstlings of his flock, the fat portions. God was pleased with that offer, that that offering. And so uh, this theme of God being pleased with our offering is one that continues in the book of Genesis. And God is pleased with this particular offering. I think that it's important just to note the theme of sacrifice that's going to become so prominent in the story of God and God's people. And sacrifice, again, will be how forgiveness of sins is mediated. And uh, that, of course, we believe points to the great sacrifice of the Lamb of God himself on Good Friday. But with this sacrifice, that is the mechanism through which the Lord acknowledges that the inclination of the human heart is evil and that God just can't destroy them. It's not going to work. And so perhaps sacrifice is how God's going to continue to relate to his people moving forward. And that is, of course, prefigured here with Noah making a sacrifice as a priest in the same way that Adam was a priest, a a conduit mediating God's presence to the creation. Here, Noah is a new priest making a sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, forgiveness enters in. God is pleased once again, and we have this glimmer of hope before things go from good to bad, from bad to worse. But as things get you know, worse and worse and worse, this offering of a sacrifice will become a prominent theme in Scripture.